Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Saving Grace, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Here's Pastor Nick. Maybe that'll add some color to this picture that we're, we're seeing here of what it means to be adopted by God as a picture of the gospel. Okay, so let me just paint some, some historical background for you. Jesus was born in Israel after the time of a man named Alexander the Great. You've probably heard of him. He took over most of the known world. And here's what was interesting about Alexander the Great, as opposed to other big conquerors like Genghis Khan and other you know, people who tried to take over the world. Alexander the Great didn't want to just come in and take over other countries by force with military, right? Like just come in with the army and force them into submission. He had a different approach, which actually helped him be more successful. He wanted to woo nations so that they wanted him to come and take over. So they wanted to be part of this empire he was building. And the way that he did that was by spreading this idea called Hellenism. Hellenism simply means the Greek way of life. Hellas is the Greek name for Greece, right? So Hellenism is the Greek way of life. And so what he offered these people was education, a common language, and he said, come be part of this empire. It's going to be better for you. And so this Greek empire grew, and Greek thinking, Greek language spread throughout the world. It was called Hellenism. And that's what Alexander the Great did. Now, by the time of Jesus, the Romans had taken over as the great power, but they had held on to all of the Hellenistic ideas. In fact, they even held on to the language to the point where at the time of Jesus, Greek was still the predominant language in the entire known world. I mean, think about this. He's writing to the Romans who live in Rome, right? They speak Latin in Rome, but he writes in Greek, not in Latin. Why? Because Greek was the language that everybody used still at that time. All of the New Testament was written in Greek because it was the universal language of that time. So Hellenism was very widespread. And Hellenism is basically humanism. Hellenism, humanism, very synonymous, right? It's all about celebrating the human intellect and the human physical form as the highest things in nature, right? As the greatest things, most beautiful things, the things of greatest value that exist. And that's why ancient Greek and Roman statues, if you've seen them, they often depict human bodies who are naked. And the other thing they would do is they would have these debates and disputes, and it was all about people showing off their intellectual prowess and their physical prowess. They created the gymnasium where they would wrestle, men would wrestle naked, as as I guess you do. And then they created the Olympic Games, and if you know about the Olympics, they competed in these feats of strength completely naked. Why did they do that? Like, why are they naked? Here's why. Because it was, it was Hellenism. It was all about celebrating the male human form and the male intellect, which they believed to be the highest and greatest, most beautiful, most valuable things in the world. Now, maybe you say, oh, I love the classical period. You know, I love the philosophy. I love all the, the art and the architecture. But I want you to think about it in this way. Think about what that means. Take Hellenism and humanism to its logical conclusion. If what is considered ideal and most valuable is a strong male form, a strong male intellect, then everything else is considered less than ideal, less valuable, subhuman perhaps. In other words, if you're a person with a disability, then you're less valuable, you're less human. If you're a person who happens to be, God forbid, female, guess what? You fall in that category too. 
And so there was this practice, which we know a lot about through archaeology, uh, where people would dispose of their babies whom they deemed to be less valuable um, because they had deformity or because they were simply female. In Greece, archaeologists uncovered a well recently where they found the remains of 450 infants, and they deemed that these infants died of natural causes. In other words, they weren't stillborn. They were thrown alive into this well, and they died. The practice is well documented by writers at that time. Archaeologists found a letter, for example, from the first century from a guy named Hilarion. And Hilarion was writing to his wife. Obviously, he had gone away for work, and he's writing home to his wife. And here's what he said. He says, my sweet wife, don't worry about me. I'm staying to work a little longer. I'll come home as soon as I can. I'm sending money. You're like, wow, good guy, right? And his wife apparently was pregnant, and he says, I pray to this pagan deity all the time that you will have a great and successful and healthy pregnancy. And you're like, wow, what a stand-up guy. He even prays. But then he says this at the end of his letter. If the child is a boy, keep it, and if it's a girl, throw it in the trash. Like, what? Wow, that changed all of a sudden, didn't it? Right? The Greek poet Posidippus, he wrote this, Everyone raises a son, even if they are poor, but everyone exposes a daughter, even if they are rich. What does that even mean? What does it mean to expose a daughter? The word expose, this was a common practice in the world at that time. And here's what it meant. It meant that you would take your baby, and if you didn't want it, you would expose it to the elements and, and leave it to die. And so what people would do, if they didn't want to kill their babies directly, because in the Greek mind, that was something which was reserved only for the gods to take away a life. But what they would do is they would take their babies, and they would take them in a hill or in the forest, and they would set them down and just walk away. And they would leave that baby to fend for itself. Now, if you've ever been around a baby, you probably know babies don't fend for themselves, right? They just don't. So without food and water, exposed to the cold, not to mention wild animals, they would die. Within the first few days of a child's life, they had this thing called a patra familia, which means the father is the head of the household. And so the uh, father would decide within the first few days of a child's life if that child was worth raising or to be discarded. And so there was even a book written by a man named Serenus, and he, it was a handbook, basically, to tell parents whether or not to keep their babies or whether to dispose of their babies. And here's one of the things he wrote. You know, he said, when the baby's born, you're to test its joints and its reflexes. You're to see if it cries out when it is first born. Um, see that it is neither sluggish nor weak, and that everything is of proper size. But if these conditions are not seen, then the child is not worth keeping, and you are to expose this infant in the wildest place you know, amongst the hills where it may soonest die. That was the process of exposure. But here's the other thing that would happen. In a way, it was almost better for these babies to die because the other thing that would happen is there would be opportunistic people, right? They knew the places where people would take their babies. And so slave traders, other bad people would hide out in the hills and they would gather up these babies who were left by their parents and they would raise them. They'd sell them as slaves. They would raise them to be prostitutes. Either they would sell them as slaves. Sometimes if they had deformities, they'd sell them into the circus where people would pay money to watch people with deformities fight each other, sometimes to the death for money. It was a sick thing. And if you were a female, think about this, a lot of healthy females were discarded just because of their gender, because they were considered of lesser value because of their gender. And these girls would be rounded up by these bad people and forced into prostitution. Today we call this sex slavery and sex trafficking. It's not new. It's been going on for a long time. So consider just how radical the Christian message was at a time like this, in a culture like this. 
where Christianity comes in and Christianity says, as opposed to what you guys think, we know, we believe that all people have equal and intrinsic value, no matter what their gender, no matter what their level of physical ability or disability, no matter their ethnicity, if they have disabilities, if they're rich or poor, all people are of equal value to God. That was an incredibly revolutionary idea. We take that as like, of course, that's normal. Understand, for most of history, that has not been considered normal. That has not been taken for granted. And so Christians said, therefore, because this is true, therefore all people should have equal value to us as well. We should treat people that way. Now again, we think that that's normal, but for most of history that was not considered normal. And Christianity came along and it was absolutely revolutionary. And see, this kind of stuff, you know, this still goes on today. 21st century, I read an article this week in Time Magazine. This week, Time Magazine Online, they published this article about how China is officially ending their policy of limiting the number of children that a family can have. In 1979, they introduced the one-child policy, and that was in effect for a very long time. And a couple of years ago, China started allowing, 2013, they started allowing families to not just have one child, but now to have two children. But now, this year, they're scrapping the policy completely. And here's why, and here's what happened. Because look, people said, hey, if I can only have one kid, then I want to have a perfect kid. And in their mind, a perfect kid meant a healthy male child. And so what would happen? They'd get an ultrasound, and even if the baby was healthy, if it was a girl, they'd get an abortion. And then they'd try again. If it was a girl, they'd get an abortion because they only get one baby, right? And they wanted to have a boy. If it was a, a baby and they found out that, you know, it wasn't perfectly healthy, they'd just get an abortion. And so what, it's happened, what has happened is that, especially in the Chinese countryside, there's this ratio of men, there's way more men than women. They said sometimes three, four times as many men as there are women, and, and it's really affecting their society. But here's another thing that happened, is that in rural places, right, like out in the countryside, not in the big cities where they don't have the same medical care in hospitals, so women would get pregnant, they might never report their pregnancy, they might wait, the baby's born, if there's a uh, sick or something, or if it's a girl, then they would do exactly what they did in ancient Greece, right? We're 2,000 years later, and they're still doing the same thing. They would abandon their babies somewhere and just let nature take its course. And so this is the same thing that's happening even now, 2,000 years later. In fact, this article in Time Magazine showed a billboard in rural China where it said, uh, the billboard said, it is against the law to drown your daughter. It's against the law to drown your daughters. Like, they have to remind people of that. See, there was an early Christian leader named Tertullian. And Tertullian, he spoke out against this practice of exposing children and killing unwanted babies. And in his writings, Tertullian mentions that he said, you know what sets Christians apart? You know what makes Christians stand out? He said that what will happen is that the Christians know the places where the babies are being exposed, and so they'll go up there, and they'll just round up all these babies, and they'll save them from the elements, from the wild animals, and from the slave traders and pedophiles and, and the abusers. And they will raise these children as their own. They'll adopt them. Do you know that, that the orphanage is a Christian invention? The Christians invented orphanages. They came about because Christians were going out and rescuing these abandoned children and clothing them and feeding them and raising them and adopting them. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 9.15 and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 9.15 and 11 a.m. 
If you have missed any part of this message or past messages, you can find them all at BeSetFreeRadio.com. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. And of course, this didn't make any sense to the Greeks and the Romans, right? They were like, well, why in the world would you do that? They thought the Christians were foolish. I mean, why would you want to raise somebody else's child? That's no benefit to you. Not to mention, why would you want these broken children, right? The rejects of society. And you know what the Christians said? They said, because that's what our God did for us. Because that's who we are, and that's what our God did for us. See, adoption has always been important to Christians, and it comes from our theology. It comes from our theology. We believe that all people have inherent value, and because adoption is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. See, when you read that adoption is a picture of the gospel, I want you to understand what it meant at that time. It didn't mean, oh, I had a family, and now I got a better family. No. You know what it meant? It meant you were destitute, poor, broken, abandoned, a helpless infant on top of a hill, and the outcome's not just death. It's sometimes worse than death, slavery, exploitation, abuse, and what adoption means is that God climbed that hill. He climbed that hill to come and rescue you. He climbed the hill of Calvary with a cross on his back in order to save you, to rescue you from slavery, to rescue you from the treacherous elements of the world, and to save you. And so I just want to run through real quickly what are some characteristics of adoption and what does the Bible say about it in other places. Number one, adoption, the implication is that it was planned in advance. Planned in advance. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 5 says this. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. As I said, I went through an adoption. We actually had to do it twice. We had to do it once in Europe and once over here. And I can tell you it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a lot of work, right? Sometimes it can be a very long, tedious process. Sometimes it can be almost a humiliating process. They come into your house. They ask you a lot of intrusive questions. We had to get psychological evaluations to find out if we're fit to be parents. Like, we already had two kids, and we didn't have to get psych evaluation to have those kids. But now they're making you, you know, go through all these hoops. And what's special about adoption, though, is that in adoption, you choose that child. You say, I didn't have to, but I do. I choose that child, and you place your love on them. And the Bible says, that is what God has done for you in Christ. See, adoptions are beautiful, but I'll tell you this. Personally, I'm especially moved by people who adopt, not because they can't have children biologically, but because even though they can have children biologically, they want to adopt because of what God has done for them. And I just put this out there for any of you who are listening. Maybe there's someone today, maybe there's some of you today who the Holy Spirit would stir you up and give you the desire and the calling to adopt a child. And if that's you, I pray that you respond to that calling. It's a good calling. It's a way that you can make a huge difference in a person's life. It's a way that you can live out the gospel towards another person and place your love on them, bless them, and change their life. Secondly, adoption comes at a cost. Look at what Galatians chapter 4 says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, adoption costs money. I don't know if you know that, but it's costly. God's grace to us came to him at a very high cost. It's free to us, but it wasn't free to him. It was a very high cost to him, but that's how much he loves us. That's what's communicated, is that he loves us that much. No price to pay is too high. Even the highest price, he's willing to do it. Thirdly, he rescues us. So we talked about that and that whole idea of what it meant in the Greek world to adopt. But he rescues us. Psalm 40 says this, He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the bog, and he set my feet on a rock and made my steps secure. 
Number four, it changes your identity. You receive a new name. You receive a new status. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know about adoption that we learned when we went through it, one of the things is that when someone's adopted, they're actually issued a new birth certificate. Did you know that? And it's actually retroacted to their birth. And so they're issued a new birth certificate that's retroacted from birth. And so in verse 14, we see that what makes us sons of God is having the Spirit of God. So everyone who has been adopted by God has the Spirit of God and then is led by the Spirit of God. And so the question for us is this. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is leading, but are you following? The Holy Spirit is leading, but are you following? That's the question for us. And we'll talk about that more as we finish in a minute. Number five, he pays your debt. So when you're adopted, all of your debts are absorbed by your new father. The debts that we have because of our sins, when he adopts you, he pays those debts. He's the only one who has the capital to do that. Isaiah 53 verse 5 describes it this way, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Sixth, he gives us an inheritance. So I remember when we went through our adoption process, one of the things the judge really wanted to emphasize to us, and we had to sign a paper about it, it was this, that if you adopt this child, understand that they are now your legal heir. In other words, they are on the same level as your biological children. And what that means is that an adopted child is not a second-class child. They have the same rights, a full-fledged child, just like a biological child. And that's what it says in verse 17. If we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. What's true of Jesus as the Son of God is now true for us. So that's incredible to think about. It means that if Jesus will live with God forever, so will we. It means that if Jesus will be glorified, so will we. But by the way, I want to just say this. You might notice that it, it says the word child sometimes. Sometimes it says that you're a child of God. Sometimes it specifically says sons of God. Now, in our day and age, right, it's considered politically correct to always use the gender non-specific word child as opposed to son. But I want you to understand, he's writing 2,000 years ago to a specific culture in which sons were treated differently than daughters. Now, whether that's right or wrong is a completely different issue. He's just writing about this and alluding to this fact that sons are treated differently than daughters. And the implication is this, whether you're male or female in Christ, you are a son of God. In other words, the, the rights of a son as regards inheritance belong to you, whether you're male or female. Now, if that bothers some of you ladies, just remember this, that, that we're also told that we're the bride of Christ. So the dudes get to be a bride and the girls get to be a son, okay? So each, and each of these metaphors is important. And if we change the metaphor, we're actually losing something special and something important that the metaphor tells us about our relationship with God through Jesus. And seventhly, finally, we experience the transforming love of a true dad. The transforming love of a true dad. Verse 15 says, For if you, you have, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba, it's just their word for daddy, Papa, Daddy. It's the word that a child would use to talk to their father. And it speaks of intimacy. See, it's one thing to be a father. It's another thing to be a dad. Right? To be a father, all you got to do is provide half of the genetic makeup, half the DNA to create that person. But to be a dad is so much more. 
Have you ever seen someone who had an absentee father or they grew up with it without their dad around and, and then they meet their father when they're grown up or an adult? You know what they do? They don't run up to him and say, hey, daddy, and hug him. No, they don't. They, they like walk up, they stick out their hand for a handshake, and they say, hi, I'm Nick. Nice to meet you, right? It's very cordial. It's very formal because they don't have that background, right? And, but this, again, is saying this isn't cordial. This isn't formal. This is a language of intimacy and trust. He's not just our father. He's our dad. And the love of a dad is transforming. True love is transforming. Have you ever seen somebody transformed by love? Right? Like somebody who's hard and cold and defensive and fearful, but then they experience love and security and all of a sudden they kind of blossom and they open up like a flower in the sun. They become softer and kinder and they're less afraid. That's a big part of that is feeling secure. And that's what it says in verse 15. We have this security. The love of God gives us security. A slave or a servant always lives in fear. If they don't behave, they'll get beaten, or maybe they get fired, they lose their job. But see, in a parent-child relationship, there's no fear of losing that status, no fear of losing that relationship. There's a security, right? Like a good dad tells their kids, no matter what you do, no matter what happens, I'll always be your dad. You'll always be my son. You'll always be my daughter. There's a sense of assurance that's what it says in verse 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's that inner witness of the Holy Spirit within us that says, yes, you belong to God. And check out what it says in, in 1 John chapter 3 about this transforming love. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it doesn't know Him. Beloved, we are now God's children and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And check this out. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, when you come to know the love of God, when you really experience it, when you understand what he has done for you, here's the effect it has on you. It makes you want to be like your dad, right? Like every good kid, every kid who has a good dad says that. I want to be like my dad. You know, studies show that the number one influence on your behavior as an adult, whether you like it or not, right, is going to be what you experienced uh, for, and observed from your parents. Doesn't, it's not fatalistic, right? Like you can get out of it, but it's the number one uh, influence on your life. What did you see and observe from your parents? And the same is true of God. The more you get to know him, the more you will be transformed by his love. And as a result, you become more and more like him. And that brings us full circle to where we started. It brings us back to verses 12 and 13, the what, right? Living according to this new identity, not as a slave to sin, but as a son of God. Maybe you say, well, you know, all that stuff was interesting about adoption and all that. It's very interesting information, but I don't, I don't really know what does this do for me in my marriage? What does this do for me as I go back to work tomorrow? You know, uh, how does this Sunday, how should this affect my Monday? Right? Here's, here's how. Because you've been adopted by God because you've been rescued and given a new identity in Jesus Christ because you have the security of being loved by God. You're no longer a slave to sin, but now you're a child of God. And here's what that means. It means that you are free to live a new way with a new identity. You don't have to be a slave to sin. Now you're a child of God. And so uh, it says there in verse 12, it says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you live uh, you, sorry, you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. In other words, the old way of life, living according to the flesh, it leads to death, pain, and destruction. The message of the gospel, on the other hand, is that in Christ, God has pulled you out of that 
set your feet on a new path, the path of life and hope and joy. And he's given you the Holy Spirit to lead you and to empower you to live that new life. The Spirit is leading. Will we follow? That's the question for us. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, this truth of the gospel. Lord, that you have adopted us. You have rescued us. We were uh, destitute, abandoned, and alone, and you came to us and saved us because of your love. And we want to remember that every day of our lives. Lord, thank you that beyond that, you've given us your spirit to enable us and guide us in this new way of life. I pray that truly, Lord, we would follow you as you lead us into holiness, into life, and into peace. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who hasn't yet entered into that relationship. They say, well, that all sounds amazing, but I don't even know if I am a child of God according to uh, that definition. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is in that situation. Lord, today would be the day when they say yes, when they surrender themselves to you. And they say, yes, Lord, I want to be your child. Thank you for what you did for me. I receive you, Jesus, and I want to be your child. And I pray that that would be the case this morning for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have two in-person services on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 11 a.m. And both services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. If you would like to support Be Set Free Radio or the ministry of Whitefields Church in Longmont with a donation, you can send a check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or give a financial gift online at whitefieldschurch.com.